the world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and, and our, our daily, daily lives. This, this is, is Geotech Wars. Welcome back, everybody, to the Geotech Wars podcast. Today, Andrew and I are joined with Ilaria Mazzocco, who's a senior fellow our very own CSIS trustee chair in Chinese business here. And prior to joining CSIS, Ilaria was a senior research associate at the Paulson Institute, where she led the research on China climate and energy policy for the Marco Polo the Institute's think tank. Very appropriate because Ilaria comes from Italy. <laughs> she holds a PhD from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and she's focused a lot on Chinese industrial policy, electric vehicle promotion efforts and the role of local governments. Welcome, Ilaria. Thank you, Kirti. Thank you, Andrew. So great to have you with us. And I want to get right into it. So, Ilaria, tell us, how did China come to lead the green energy industry? Yeah, so I would say it was a really a combination, a convergence of various factors. So you had, on the one hand, industrial policy, right? So you had government support under the form of certainly subsidies, but also credit, availability of credit, cheap credit in many cases, government guidance funds, and a variety of various instruments and incentives that local governments provided. But then you also just had, like, the broader positive environment for manufacturing that's available in China, where, again, local governments really play a big, important role. And then, finally, you had a huge internal Demand. So I think we tend to think about China as a big emitter of greenhouse gases, which it absolutely is. It's the largest global emitter of greenhouse gases, but it's also a really large consumer of clean energy technology. So it's the largest market for solar panels, wind turbines, car, electric vehicles, etc. So that was also a big boon for manufacturers. But in addition to all the government-led elements, you also had companies that were really entrepreneurial, high competition in China, and very globalized value chains, which really enabled the collaboration across borders, transfer of technology, know-how, talent, etc., which enabled the growth of these industries. So you mentioned a couple of these, but what are some of the specific technologies they're actually leading in? So if you think of all the leading technologies uh, that we have today that are necessary for decarbonizing our economy, those supply chains always go through China. So when you think of uh, wind turbines and wind turbine components like permanent magnets, solar panels from polysilicon all the way to the solar module, the batteries, right? And so when you think of the minerals, the refining of the minerals, right? So if the mining and refining, lithium, for example, graphite, which obviously I think we'll be getting into later on, but also the production of the battery cell, the packing, all of that is highly concentrated in China. So to give you an example, the latest International Energy Agency report indicates that two-thirds of all lithium-ion battery manufacturing is located in China. 80% of cathode manufacturing is in China and 90% of anode manufacturing is in China. So those are all you know major components of the battery. It's pretty incredible. I mean, is it just 
foreign companies manufacturing in China or are Chinese companies, in this case, innovating and leading? Chinese companies are absolutely innovating and leading. So there are certainly some foreign companies that are involved in China and producing in China. But when you look at, for example, batteries, CATL, which is a Chinese company, is now the biggest producer of batteries internationally. And it definitely has some very innovative technology and IP that is accumulated in these areas as well. So I want to bring Kirti. This is something we talk about all the time. So China has this incredible record so far in green technology, better than us. Is it a problem for us that we tend to cut ourselves off from China with chips and other things that we've been talking about lately? Yeah, Andrew, that's the million-dollar question here. You know, Ilaria is rightly identifying an important technology area where China has the lead, not the United States. So we've talked a lot in our podcast about important critical technologies like semiconductors, artificial intelligence. We're going to talk a little bit about quantum compute. But these are important technologies where the United States has the lead, and specifically in semiconductors, we, Ilaria, in our podcast have talked so much about our government's efforts and the allied nation's efforts to limit tech transfer to China. But this angle that you're bringing in, where China has this identified correctly its leadership in clean energy technologies, where they maintain chokehold and leverage, is an area that we need to worry about because we need this technology. The world needs this technology right now. Right. So I guess it begs the question, are they taking steps to defend their lead in green energy in the same way that the United States is trying to do so in semiconductors? Yeah. After the Biden administration's executive order refinement a couple of weeks ago on semiconductors to limit semiconductor tech transfer in high-end chips like AI and compute, we saw the Chinese government responding with limiting restrictions on important material graphite that, as you know, Ilaria, is very important element for EV batteries. And China, I think, holds 65% market share globally on graphite. And this comes after Previous restrictions China has put on gallium and germanium, again, important rare earth materials. So, Laria, how is China leveraging their leadership in green energy in this ongoing tech war with the United States? So... I don't know that we actually know at this point in time, right? So what we've seen so far is that the Chinese government has introduced these export licenses. So that's obviously reduced the flow of exports because companies have to apply for these licenses, right? And we don't know exactly who's going to get them, where they're going to go, etc. But this is, seems to me like the government, Chinese government is signaling, hey, we know this stuff is necessary for you to diversify away from us. And guess what? We control the upstream inputs as well. And we could cut you off from them. So to me, at the moment, it's more of a signal than anything else. In fact, I actually think the bigger challenge is just that Chinese companies continue to add capacity in China. So when you look at solar panels, for example, even though we have now a big push in the United States, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, which is absolutely necessary to diversify, when you then look at how much new capacity is planned to come online in China, it is what is happening in 
in the U.S. is just like a drop in the ocean. And so there is, I think, in a way, the way in which China is going to fight to maintain its leadership is just by continuing to lower the cost and expand the manufacturing capacity within China. And if I can just make one more observation is that in some ways what makes these technologies a little different from the very high-tech products that you were discussing previously in the podcast is that it's more about the cost than it is about the actual cutting-edge technology that we're talking about here. So the manufacturing advantage really plays to China's strength here. So, Alaria, will Chinese mineral export controls actually hurt the U.S. green energy industry, or is it just the manufacturing, as you said? Yeah, they could absolutely hurt the U.S. industry, especially because at this moment it is in a very nascent stage, right? Because through the Inflation Reduction Act, there's been an effort to try and develop these industries in the United States. But again, as we said, like it's going to take a long time for a lot of these supply chains to actually diversify, and the minerals are probably the more complicated element, right? It takes maybe 10 years for some of these mines to come online. Um, and so as investments are starting to flow towards the different countries that are aside from China, we continue to be reliant on those imports from China. And I would say this is not just a challenge for the United States, but there's a lot of other countries that are also looking to diversify away from China, including, for example, India with solar panels, but also Europe has been very concerned about these issues as well. And Andrew, I want to jump in here. Your question is exactly right. Is it both? You know, is it limiting or chokehold on raw materials, rare earth, or is it also China's inherent manufacturing advantage that could hurt us? And I think the answer is both. Hilaria, you answered the first one. You know, raw materials, definitely an issue. Let me just take the manufacturing a little bit. You know, you've talked about how much scale has impacted China's leadership in these critical technologies. And I was listening to my colleague, Elaine Buckberg, yesterday. She was here for our Geoeconomics Council. And she was also telling me that not only is China a leader in, in electronic vehicles in terms of market share, right? I think you've written about this. More than half of all the EV sales in the world are in China. They're also one of the largest exporters. And Andrew, they're producing EVs that are really economical, like smart cars, $5,000 a piece. So in many, many parts of the world, they also have a natural advantage in breaking in and entering the markets where they don't yet exist and are likely to. With super appealing, cheap EVs. Right, where the demographics are changing. And for our listeners, Elaine Buckberg actually teaches this at Harvard. So if you're at Harvard and you want to learn about EVs, that's the place to go. (laughs) Thank you for putting a plug for Elaine. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess this all begs the question, how is the U.S. responding to China's leadership in green energy? Well, I think the Inflation Reduction Act is the main policy one can point at. So there has been now this effort to expand both the market in the United States and the manufacturing. So a lot of incentives have been provided. And of course, the Inflation Reduction Act comes with a lot of localization requirements, right, to qualify for certain subsidies, especially in the EV space, right, for the minerals in the battery and the actual assembly of the vehicle. The challenge is, as I just mentioned, that some of those supply chains, alternative supply chains, aren't there yet. So this is going to be a big big challenge for a lot of manufacturers. Andrew, another thing that comes to my mind, let me pull another plug for our CSIS, Eric Paloma, who leads the New Frontiers Project, which is about big demographic trends that the world is facing right now, right? I was listening to how the demographics of the world is shifting. We are 8 billion people on this planet right now. We are going to reach up to 10 billion people by 2100, after you know which we stay in that equilibrium. 
But a lot of that growing population will have higher per capita income. That's a good thing. But it's also an issue because the carbon footprint per person is going to increase. The need for transportation per person is going to increase. In fact, the projections show us that the growing demand of energy from these developing populations is going to more than offset the savings of carbon footprint we are working towards with net zero commitments in the OECD countries and developed nations. So if we don't find a way to take advantage of these green technologies in which China is leading, we have a global problem. Not to mention, so many people have pointed out that the cost of climate change is just rapidly increasing for governments, our government certainly, and governments all around the world. So this sort of seems like the thing we need to do to work together, right, Ilaria? Yes, I certainly have some thoughts on where some collaboration could be more fruitful. I think in a way now technology has become so fraught that the United States and China should probably be talking more and collaborating more on governance, global governance, which is going to be extremely important. In some areas, we don't even have a common accounting system for carbon emissions, right? We don't even count to the same things sometimes. And we certainly aren't talking enough about risks such as geoengineering, right, which we could definitely imagine rogue actors taking the lead in some of these areas. And we would want, I think, coordination between countries. But taking a step back, I think, yes, you know, I think it's remarkable in a way that we're talking about these technologies on a podcast called Geotech Wars, right? Just a few years ago, this was seen as just the success of globalization, that we had these cheap technologies, you know, solar panels. Just a few years ago, the International Energy Agency, the IEA, stated that solar panels are now the cheap source of electricity in history, right? What a success, right? But what has happened is now we're thinking more and more about the investments that governments need to make, that consumers need to make also, and companies to transition to a cleaner economy. And there's increasing concern that when you make that investment, if all that flows to China and there's no return domestically, that's going to be unsustainable. And so I think we're seeing more and more of that in addition to perhaps national security concerns of choke points and risks of over-reliance on a single country that is a rival. Speaking of risks, what does de-risking mean when it comes to green tech? That's a very good question. And I think different countries and different governments and even sometimes different people within the same government are thinking about it differently. So what I think about as the priority is diversifying the origins of these materials and goods that we're using to decarbonize. Some would prefer to have a completely reshored and domestic supply for some of these products. I think in many cases this is going to be impossible. I think having a diversification goal is probably much more achievable and probably more achievable also, more palatable to also partners and allies around the world, right? I think there are going to be challenges, especially a de-risking definition that cuts China completely out of the picture, I think is going to be extremely difficult, especially at a time in which Chinese companies are internationalizing. Given the size of the Chinese economy and the importance of these Chinese companies in these industries, which are growing, that's generally natural. But I think that complicates the picture significantly. If you look at Europe right now, which I'm working on a report on, a significant number of new battery factories that are being built in Europe are owned by Chinese companies. So that is 
certainly diversifying somewhat, but it still creates those linkages with China. And I think we're going to have to come up with better ways of thinking how to manage the risk because we're not going to be able to avoid it completely. Kirti, I know you have thoughts on this as well. Andrew, this keeps going back to that core issue. We keep talking about decoupling, de-risking. How far do we want to go? And what are the cost and consequences? Because as you're saying, Ilaria, it's becoming clear, as from an economist perspective, different kind of models and different kind of advantages. <laughs> Green tech has a natural advantage in an economy of scale like China and where state subsidies and investments provide an upfront investment to create momentum. And that's why they have succeeded. How are we going to take advantage of that? How much advantage of that are we going to take? The more we can, the better off we are going to be globally. And we just need to find the maximum possible leverage while we try to do a little bit of that de-risking that you talk about. Limiting our reliance, yes, but let's not entirely cut ties because it's going to hurt us all. (laughs) Alaria, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind is that, taking aside that I think it's absolutely necessary to diversify these supply chains, right? So I think it's a good thing that a lot of governments are investing more in this. But overall, these industries really developed in a time of hyper-globalization. And so we know what made them work at the time, but we don't really know what happens when you take away that globalization element. We don't know what happens to innovation exactly. We're entering uncharted territory, and I think in a way it's unavoidable, but I think that's just something to keep in mind. Uncharted territory is the theme that I keep hearing mm-hmm. when it comes to all these issues that we're talking about on this podcast. Ilaria, thank you so much for your time today and for such a great discussion. Kirti, is always great being with you. Likewise. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.